0: Well, let's take our Bibles and let's locate 1 Peter chapter 2. We've made it to the next chapter. Of course, Peter didn't think or write in chapters. He wrote in sections and pericopes and sections and thoughts. And so we're now approaching this next thought. We spent about 10 or so weeks in the first section of thought. So now in what we know as chapter 2, Peter begins to talk more about the Word of God. And to help us kind of set the framework and to get our mindset in the best possible place for what he's going to talk about, I want you to think with me about a scene that most of you have probably witnessed, no doubt every parent here has experienced. And I'm not trying to be overly humorous or graphic in this. It's my intention instead to make sure that you visually picture with me the beauty and the boldness of of a hungry newborn of a of a craving infant whose appetite has just kicked in and their body has gotten the signal it's time to eat you've seen this haven't you whether it's from a bottle or from a mother's breast you've seen the tenacity and the desire the craving that's unstoppable i mean it's audible it's visible. And the longer you wait to address that desire for milk, well, the, the more uh, you'll find frustration increasing, right? <laughs> those newborns, those babies, they are ready to eat. But oh, the sight and the sound of a newborn who finally gets fed. And every parent here said, amen. I recall those days with our four When they were hungry, we just had to find the time and the way to make sure they got milk. And in all human honesty, candor, and God-ordained appreciation of his impeccable design, watching an infant latch on and fulfill that longing for milk is not only satisfying for the baby, it's relieving for those raising that baby. (laughs) That's the mental image I want you to have in your head as we get to 1 Peter chapter 2 because physically we know this to be true that the baby will grow to the degree that he or she is into that milk and Peter here makes the same case about us spiritually this is the picture Peter paints on the canvas of our minds in these first 3 verses so look with me would you at them and let's see a spiritual principle surface and emerge that i think will uh, encourage convict and motivate us today. Now, before we read a couple of incidentals, I'll be taking questions today, hopefully live in the auditorium. It depends on how well we make progress in regards to time, but we're aiming for some live questions today. So have your phone out. You'll see the number on your bulletin. You'll see it on the screen behind me. That's the number to use to text in questions. We just ask that they're humble and they're not trying to be trapping or you know, uh, impossible answer. I'm not an expert. I'll do the best I can, but I love your questions. So we often will take some in the service. We're going to try today to do that. And then also, we're going to have a special response time at the end. So I'm going to prep you now that we're going to be able to engage in a response time that involves prayer in regards to this specific passage. So just be thinking and asking the Holy Spirit, Lord, prepare my heart to respond humbly. And submissively to what you have shown me from your word this morning. Let's dig into it, can we? Here's 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 1 to 3. He begins by saying so so in he's he's kind of transitioning now from this these thoughts about God's word being living and abiding and remaining forever and powerful. It's what births us into God's family. It's what gives us a Uh, a love for others that's pure and unpolluted in light of all that God's word is and does. He says, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. When you see that first verse in the ESV, of course, it's a sentence, like a statement. I think in the most literal understanding of this, it's really not the end of a sentence. This is more of a A phrase, it's a participle phrase, to be frank with you. It is describing the reality of what the Word of God has done and is doing in the lives of these believers. I think some translations say it. I prefer this translation. So having put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. So Peter here again is describing through the use of a aorist participle, a kind of a past tense statement of what has occurred and yet continues to occur He's saying, hey, here's what's happening in your life. Here's a reality. This is going on. The word of God is purging these things. from I love the way he mentions these five sins. You notice they're, they're really opposite of the kind of love we're to have for each other. Remember the earnest love towards each other the word of God produces? These are words that describe things that are not pure. This is not pure love. This is not unpolluted, agape, sacrificial love. These are words and sins that describe impurity. They describe pollution and corruption. Do you see them? Malice, which is just wishing harm on someone. This idea of deceit and, and being cunning and crafty and trying to manipulate and you know work around the situation to kind of under the radar, get what you want. The idea of hypocrisy, being something that you really aren't or pretending to be something you really aren't, saying one thing, doing another. The idea of envy and jealousy and then slander using your words to, to hurt others. These are all words that would be opposite of what he says the word of God does in us when it says, he says that the word of God produces a, a pure and earnest love. These are opposite of that. And so he's saying the word of God is what purges these things from us. And I love the way he does not leave like a, like a quota. He doesn't say, hey, for the most part, live without these. Look what he says three times, all malice all deceit, all slander. And the sense is, man, God's word rids us of of these wrong motives, these sinful desires and corrupting elements in our relationships. And so this is what he's saying to us. So having experienced this, being involved in this, here's a better craving. Here's a Better desire. Look at verse 2. Like newborn infants, the word there means baby. It's not child, it's not son. And in fact, in some ways, he's almost repetitious because he could just use the word infants. In the Greek language, it would mean just baby. Everyone would know, all the readers would know. He means a a brand new child. But he adds to that this adjective, a newborn baby. Like, is there another kind of baby? Peter's saying, hey, like someone freshly birthed, long for the pure spiritual milk. Crave spiritual milk like a brand new baby craves physical milk. The word long for is the word for lust. Now, I'm intentionally going to. Stretch your brains here for a moment. Admit to you, first of all, that the word lust, culturally, it has negative connotations. I'm aware of that. You're aware of that. That's not... It it just is. But etymology, etymology, the etymology of the word lust, and definitionally, the word lust is actually a neutral word. Are you following me? Culturally... And by practice, we have associated it with negative things. But it's just the word for strong desires. It just means you have an intense craving for something. And in this text, the word lust is used in a positive way. If you can try to grapple with that. Can I say this with the most reverence? Lust for God's word. Now, that's hard to culturally practically think about. You're right. But that is, by definition, what Peter is aiming at. Long for, crave, strongly desire, pure spiritual milk. Now, in the text, we don't see the word word. Some of your translations have it in there. It is a good addition. In the original, it's not there, but the context is very clear to us. In fact, I've drawn an arrow from the word milk in verse two in my Bible, back to the word word in verse 25, back to the phrase word of the Lord in verse 25, and back to the phrase word of God in verse 23. If there's any doubt about what he's meaning by spiritual milk, just look at the context, right? And he's mentioning the word of God, the word of the Lord, the word, the gospel, the good news. And then Peter says, it's done this to your life. It's removed and purged those evil elements and corrupting desires. And so long for it, crave it, strongly desire it. Watch this, church. Lust for God's word. It's pure. It's the milk that every one of us needs. Now, as you think more about this phrase, this command, you see that a replacement has occurred, don't you? We're no longer craving and longing for malice and evil and deceit and hypocrisy. We're craving something else. It shows you what God's word's done to us when it's birthed us into his family. It's given us a new, earnest love for each other. And so really what's happening here, watch this. This is not a verse about maturity. This is a verse about intensity. See, often when we read about milk of the word, we think, oh, that's for babies, and he does use a baby analogy here, but his intent is not to say, hey, get past the baby stage. That may be Paul's intent in 1 Corinthians 3. It may be the writer of Hebrews' intent in Hebrews 5, where he says that often uh, you know, we, we, we uh, only drink milk because we're carnal, where he says that we should be teachers, but some of you are are not even growing your faith, and so you're just needing milk again. Like, That may be his point in those, but in this case, Peter is not saying, hey, milk of the word, that's just just temporary, it's bad. He's actually saying you should retain the type of intensity for the word that a baby has for milk when it's freshly born. And that's why I ask you to think of that image, because that's an audible, visible, memorable image, isn't it? That's how we should long for God's word. And of course, his reasoning is so that by it, and it there refers to milk, which refers to the word, you may grow up into salvation. So, in one sense, we are seeing that the word is the source of maturity, but he's not saying get past the word. He's saying retain this intensity in order to experience maturity. And man, with that one thought, does the Lord not just kind of start poking at our chest? Because what's the one thing many of us lose the longer we're saved? Intensity. We become comfortable. We kind of just get used to things. It becomes regular, routine. I love the way Peter here is saying if you want to grow up into your salvation, the work that he's explained for us in 25 verses, thats has brought about by the word of God. God has caused us to be born again through his word and all that he explains about that. He says, if you want to maintain growth and maturity in that, then see to it that you retain an intensity about the word that brought you into the family because that's what's gonna help you grow up in the family. Peter here is aiming at one thing, The word of God is a necessity for everyone born into God's family. And just as babies desire physical milk to survive and live and grow, so do spiritual babies need to desire with great intensity spiritual milk. He then says this interesting phrase at the end, this verse 3, it begins with the word if. Do you see it in your Bibles there? He says, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. So he throws in another kind of a metaphor for tasting and um, you know experiencing um, with our mouth. The word if there, I think, is a better, the better word to be to say sense. That's often true when you see the word if in the Bible. Not every time, but most of the time when you see if, you can insert sense and it will make just as good a sense. No pun intended there. So Peter's saying this. Crave spiritual milk, which is the word of God. That's how you grow up into your salvation. That's how you mature. Your intensity affects your maturity. Since this is how you've tasted the Lord is good. In other words, you are born again. He's really giving them an assurance that, hey, you've given signs. You know you're one of God's children. His word has birthed you into his family. This is true of you. You've got the initial taste buds for it. Now continue to crave it so that you grow up into it. So it's meant to be an encouraging set of verses. I believe you're born again. You've tasted the Lord is good. He quotes here Psalm 34, much like in the previous verses uh, that close out, chapter one, he's quoting much of Psalm 40. And so he's saying here, I'm, I'm confident you've tasted God's goodness through the gospel, the word about Christ. Now keep craving that so you keep growing up into that very salvation In fact, if you were to put this in reverse order, these three verses, here's what you'd find. That the taste that came through the Word leads to an increasing thirst for the Word that enables change by the Word. Because the first verse talks about change, doesn't it? In other words, these things are being removed. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, slander, they're being removed. That's a change, a transformation is taking place that's dependent upon, that's congruent with our thirst, our longing for the word, and that's expected because we've tasted that God is good. So do you see the process in play here? Do you see kind of the progression that Peter's laying out for us? Say these three words with me. Taste, thirst, transformation. Say them again with me. Taste, thirst, transformation. Transformation. And about transformation, just notice that in this text, there is a, what I would call a battery of transformation occurring. There's a negative post and a positive post, we'll call it. There's something that's being put off. Do you see those five sins? They're being removed. They're being expunged. But then there's something in being put on. And he uses a general word called growing up. So something positive is occurring. We are maturing. And, and, and I'll use this phrase correctly in the battery analogy. Something negative is occurring. There's things being removed. We've seen this in our church. You've seen this in your small group. You've seen this in your family, in your life. A couple of examples. Just these are just general ways we see people growing towards the positive and leaving behind the sin for the negative. Let's just take giving for example. We've learned this week and this has been a very encouraging statistic. But about 60 to 65% of our church members give. That's good. There's 30 to 35 35 to 40% who aren't giving, of our members who aren't giving at all. Now in that 60 to 65%, that does include those who may have given one time, maybe twice. So it's not a regular amount, but at least of our members, 60 to 65% are giving. I, I'm just encouraged by that. Um, we need the 35% to not just stay in the dining room, but to get to the kitchen, the store, and help us get the product too, okay? Um, but I'm encouraged by that. But watch this those 60 to 65 percent, they've done away with selfishness. Watch this, I'll say this clearly. And wasting money, and they've moved to investing their money. Are you with me? To giving to and through their church for missions, discipleship, service, uh, meeting physical needs, addressing gospel expansion, church planting. Those are all things. So many things happen when you give to and through your church. And so those who are giving are realizing, you know, I don't want to have to, I don't want to keep wasting money, just don't. Things that don't matter, I'm going to invest money. That's putting away the negative, so to speak, and pursuing the positive. That's growing. Many of you have seen this with your language. used to be that criticism maybe for you was like the common response. But you realize that's wrong. It's sinful. And so instead of criticizing, now you're encouraging. Are you with me? Just another example of how we put away sin and we embrace growth. So you could pick a number of examples, whether it's giving or language or other ways. This is what Paul, excuse me, what Peter describes as transformation brought about by the Word of God. There is a, a putting off of what's wrong, and there's an embracing and a pursuing of what's right. There's a growing. And this is the transformation he's talking about. And, and catch this, church. Every bit of this, whether it's specifically mentioned here, which is, you know, uh, doing away with hypocrisy and deceit and slander and pursuing love of one another earnestly, whether it's that or other examples, all of it, every single bit of it. Church, don't miss this. All of it is connected to God's word and our longing for it. This is the imperative in this section. Long for the pure spiritual milk. So let's make sure we make the connection and let's be under the weight of this. Hear this with crystal clarity. Growth and God's word are tied together. Let's say it even more bluntly cravings and changes are connected. My sense right now tells me there's some in this room who are thinking, so that's why my life never changes. Because you have no craving for God's word. Oh, so that's why I'm not growing. Because the Bible is just another thing that sits on the table. And so it's becoming plainly obvious what the principle is here. The truth that Peter's proclaiming to us is this right here. I want you to say it with me. You know this, but let's repeat it together. You'll grow to the degree you get into God's word. You see, Peter here is doing the same thing spiritually that he proved and visualized for us physically. He's saying, saying, we know this is how newborn infants operate. They will grow to the degree that they long for milk. And the same thing's true spiritually. You will grow to the degree that you get into God's Word. Now, let's be clear about something. We don't control or produce the change, the Word does. We can, however, respond and react to the word. We can exhibit a craving. There is a relationship in view here. There's a correlation established. And I think it's a correlation or relationship of intensity. And so we take personal and passionate responsibility to do what we can to the word, which is crave it, long for it. Knowing that only God can do what he needs to do through the Word, which is change us. And some of us focus so much on the change that we miss the very avenue by which God makes the change. I would rather you focus on the avenue of change, the Word, and then watch God do what only God could do change you. So the principle here remains. It's clear from the Scripture, it's not rocket science. It's what you've probably known, but sometimes intentionally dismiss. And it's this right here. Say it one more time with me. You'll grow to the degree you get into God's Word. Now, while 100% of you probably believe that in theory, at least you do, at least while you're in this gathering, Right? I think if I were to give you the results of our survey from two weeks ago, I'd say to you about 65% of you believe that in practice. Now, if you weren't here two weeks ago, let me share with you what happened. I took an informal, spontaneous, anonymous survey. So I'll say off the bat for all any fellow PhDers out there, any uh, students who are into research, this probably is not validated, okay? This is not a credible instrument. But it is an informal, anonymous, spontaneous survey I took of people in the room at the moment. And I ask you, who here engages their Bible five times a week? The response to that survey of those who turned in their responses was 65% of the people in the room engaged their Bible five times a week. Now, out of both services, only 161 didn't turn anything in. So let's just be true to research, and let's just say this, that let's say all those are no's. I don't know if they were or not, but I'm just going to say, if you didn't turn one in, it's a no. That lowers that to about 43%. Now, in comparison to national averages, both are pretty good. The national average is somewhere between 10% of church members on a regular basis read their Bible five times a week or more. We ask you how many of you engage your Bible five times a week. If we just take the surveys that were turned in, which we will, that's 65%. So what I want to do is to help the 35% and to keep encouraging the 65%. I want to make three hard-hitting observations or provide three hard-hitting realizations from this text and this principle with this goal in mind to spur you on to either begin craving God's Word or to continue craving God's Word. I want to speak to the intensity of your spiritual desires for Scripture, okay? First of all, here's the first hard-hitting realization. I should crave God's Word because it helps conquer sin and produce maturity. Now, we've said this already. This is somewhat repetitious, but I'm putting it into a first-person sentence because I want you to realize the value of craving God's word. In fact, let me just put this in almost humorous relational terms. Husbands, this is why your wife wants you to crave God's word, (laughs) because it will help you conquer sin and produce maturity. Every wife said, okay, come on folks, work with me here. I mean, you know you're thinking it, but the truth is it's flip-flopped as well. Every husband's thinking, honey, this is why I want you to crave God's word because it will help you conquer sin and produce maturity. This is what your friends are thinking. This is what your small group leaders are thinking. see, the reality is this. We all want someone else, the other person in the relationship, the other person in the small group. We want the other person to conquer sin and, and pursue maturity. Guess what? They're wanting that for you too. So can we all just realize that, man, we need to crave God's word because it's the best relational tool we have to improve how well we get along and our love for each other. Don't forget, back in chapter two verse one, what does the Word of God purge? It pur- purges malice, hypocrisy, slander, deceit, and what does it? produce, it produces an earnest love for one another from a pure heart. So for the sake of your small group, for the sake of your family, hey children, for the sake of your relationship with mom and dad, mom and dad, for the sake of your relationship with your kids, can we just all begin to, with more intensity, crave God's word? Because that is what conquers sin and produces maturity. I'm always reminded of this and the truth of this in shoe leather and real-life clothes. When I think about the deepest change God made in my life, apart from the moment I was saved, it was early 1998, and I was a man with a hot temper. I've shared that with you before. I've written about it. I won't go into detail, but I'm convinced from God's word, and practically speaking, experientially, that the amount of, of God's word that I got into my life in those first few months was directly related to the amount of change I experienced. And God changed me over time. He produced a different character in me. It took some time to root out the old and instill the new. But he did, and he did it through his word, And I radically changed the amount of input that I was getting from God's word. I just want to say to you, if you want to see God change your life and remove sin and produce maturity, it will be related to the amount of scripture that's in your life. Because you will grow to the degree that you get into God's word. That being said, I think some of you should radically increase the intake. I'm not against the daily bread, but a verse a day, you need more than that, okay? So so I don't know where the level is, but I think you should look at your life and ask yourself, man, there's some, what level of change am I needing? And I would begin to say that I'm going to need that level of God's word, and man, For the vast majority of us, the mantra should be this, I'm going to increase the intake. Trust me, your relationships will be glad you did. Second hard-hitting realization, no cravings for God's word is a sign that something's wrong. Let's just be honest, put everything on the table here. The metaphor holds But any newborn infant who's not craving nourishment and milk isn't crying to eat when it's time to eat, isn't letting those around them know, hey, it's time. I'm hungry. When that's not happening, something's wrong. And the same thing is true spiritually. Now, I'm going to share with you a personal opinion in the spiritual realm. I tend to think, generally speaking, when there's no cravings, that's a sign of no conversion. That's what I personally believe. I could take you to several parables and scriptures where that seems to be the end game. I don't know that I can prove that. And so I want to say to you, that's why I did not say in this point that no cravings are a sign of no conversion. Because it could be that there is No cultivation happening of the seed. Hebrews 5 talks about that sometimes our senses can become dull of hearing. And so we just remain immature. And the writer of Hebrews even says, you should have been teachers by now, but now you need someone to teach you again. So I want to be just pastorally transparent and tell you that I don't know if it's always no conversion. I might personally think that's probably the root cause, but maybe there's just a cultivation, maybe there's some deep pain somewhere, maybe there's some, some um, a tragedy, maybe there's some hurt, uh, and so it's just it's, it's covered over, it, it's produced an environment that where the seed is just really struggling to burst forth. So I don't know if it's no conversion or no cultivation, but can we both agree with this? If there's no cravings, something's wrong. And this is the conversation that many of you need to have with the person in the mirror. If right now, well, listen, you're like, man, that, I just don't have that kind of craving. My intensity is almost zero. Like, would you look in the mirror and say, why is that? Why do I not crave for the one thing that brings me nourishment and growth? Like, like just what's wrong? It may be that there's no genuine conversion. Because the Word of God brings us into the family of God. That's what 1 Peter 1, 22 to 25 says. And so if you don't have any craving for God's Word, it could be that you've never been converted by God's Word through the Spirit of God and the Gospel of God that may have never have occurred in your life. It could be, though, that you've never cultivated those initial taste buds that were given to you at conversion. I'll leave you to the Holy Spirit to kind of wrestle through that. My goal in this point is to simply bring this realization to you. If you don't have cravings or they're extremely extremely minimal, don't lie to yourself. Something's wrong. If you are of the mindset right now, well, Todd, I think probably I've just never been saved. Then here's what I want you to do. When you leave this room, and you can do it right now if you want. You can do it in the car, in the parking lot. You can do it when you get home. I'm not trying to say delay it. I just want to try to make this point in light of this text. Read Romans 10 or John 3. In other words, get your heart and your eyes and your mind in the word, the gospel of God, the good news preached to you. Read uh, Romans 10 or John 3. And what you see in there is is the Christ, the Son of God, being the substitute, the sacrifice for the sins of the world the only one able to save us because of his perfect life, death, and resurrection. And as you read that, ask God to open your eyes to it. And when he does, as he does, express faith in what God has promised, that he saves all who believe the truth about Jesus. And in that moment with the word of God in front of you, ask God to save you through that word and by his spirit. And God will do that. And then text me on that text number and say, today I was born again by the word of God call me, email us. If right now in this service you're saying, Todd, I'm trusting God to save me through his word and by his spirit because of my faith in Jesus, his son, I man, come see me afterwards. What I'm saying to you is don't delay addressing the real problem. If it's that you have no conversion, get saved. Trust God. Be converted. and You'll experience these cravings that come to those who are newly born. If it's a cultivation issue, then let me address that by this third realization. Begin now to cultivate small cravings. I word it like this, small cravings can and must be cultivated. Your spiritual life depends upon it. Now you're asking, well, Todd, how does that happen? Some of you are saying, that's me. Like, I I know I'm born again. I'm confident. I've trusted Jesus alone to save me and forgive me through his work on the cross. But I I have very minimal cravings. Like, that's me, Todd. I've got a cultivation problem. Then here's how I would encourage you to move towards obedience to this command. Because the phrase long for is a command. And you're thinking, well, Todd, I don't have any desire for it, apparently. Or it's minimal. Like, what do I do now? How do I cultivate obedience towards a command? pray for it, and then move towards it. I'm going to be very pastorally simplistic on purpose. I'll explain it. But pray for it because God always enables what he commands. God never gives commands he won't equip us to obey. So if you know you're born again, that you belong to God, but you have minimal cravings, first pray for God to to continue to give you deeper, stronger cravings. God says his commands are not burdensome, so he doesn't command us towards things that he doesn't enable us to do. So pray first and foremost, God, you must want me to crave this. You will enable me, so God, please give me the cravings, okay? Heighten them, deepen them. But then, not just pray for it, but move towards it. Here's what I mean by that. Increase your appetites through consistent contact. You see, I believe discipline turns to delight through regular use and visible progress. God will answer your prayer often through your own, um, can I call it activity and engagement and discipline? That's often his ordained means of deepening your cravings. Let me give you an example. If you like to exercise my hunch is you didn't initially. Now, I'm not a trainer or any kind of exercise guru at all, but when I started running back in 1997, and I wouldn't even use the word running. I tell Julie, I just kind of walk real fast, um, <clears throat> jogging, whatever you call it, but I hated it. I literally just thought, who, who wants to pound the pavement like this? And as the miles increased, I felt like I was wasting time. Uh, It's like, this this is ludicrous. But what I discovered was I began to long for it, and it is an endorphin reaction. Let's not lie. My body became dependent upon and needy for, and can I use the word addicted to, the rush of multiple miles and sweat and all those things increasing. I'm no nutritionist for sure, but whatever happens, I'm like, that feels good. I like that. I don't think that sin or wrong. We have to all manage our hobbies and what brings us to light. Those aren't wrong. They can get out of hand, yes. But what I learned is this. What I didn't like, I began to approach through discipline and through consistent use and visible progress, it became a delight to me. The same thing can happen in regards to God's word. Consistent use, And then as that makes visible changes and progress, you begin to, can I use this phrase, experience spiritual endorphins. Like, man, I'm not the same person I was three months ago. And the wonder of that begins to be a delight to you when early it was more like a duty. But often, discipline is the ordained means by which God gives you the ability and power to fulfill the commands he's given you. So pray for it and move towards it through discipline, consistent contact. I've experienced this with certain foods. I, I never really liked avocados or guacamole, um, but I'm a, a avid fan of chips and salsa. And so one day while I was just eating chips and salsa, my, my grandkids were just eating avocados almost plain. They cut them up, and I guess they're real malleable and they're easy to swallow, and I'm like, that looks like a nasty meal to me, you know? That's what I'm thinking. And Julie says, you ought to try it. And then she said, especially with chips. She goes, you love chips and And I said, I do. And so I tried it one day, and I, at first I was like, eh, it's a little mushy, but we could add some garlic, a little salt, and you know what now? I'll never order chips that I don't get guac. I mean, I'm part of Chipotle's guac verified mode, you know? I didn't like it earlier. I do now. Why? Consistent use, visible progress. And so let me just make this practically plain to you. Your cravings will be cultivated when through discipline, God answers your prayer because you're consistently involved in it, seeing the progress from it, and your duty turns to light. And you'll suddenly begin to, man, I want more of God's word. And you'll want more of God's word and your cravings will deepen and you'll find that you're obeying 1 Peter 2.2. You'll begin to long for the spiritual milk. Again, this all goes back to our take-home principle. All these realizations, they all point back to the point of this text, which is this. You will grow to the degree that you get into God's word. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.